0: If you have your Bible, turn with me to Second Samuel chapter 6. You notice we're into Second Samuel this morning. And note, we will only be reading through verse 15, not through verse 16. That was my bad uh, on that. So turn, you can turn there in your Bible, or you can look on in your bulletin, or it will be on the screen behind me. Uh, but as you're turning there, I want to remind you about a poem. It's an old poem by a man by the name of Wilbur Rees. The title of the poem is Three Dollars Worth of God, Please. Here are a few lines from that poem. I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I would like to buy three dollars worth of God, please. Can you relate to that at all this morning? I can. And if we're honest, I think you probably can. Because that's often what we want, isn't it? Not too much of God. Three dollars worth of God, please. You see, we all want a version of God that allows us to get what we want. We want a god that's going to make us happy. We want a god that we can tame, that we can keep under control in our lives. And the only problem with that is that there's this thing called the whole bible. <laughs> and you get passages like first or second Samuel chapter 6. And when you run into passages like 2 Samuel chapter 6, you get a whole lot more than $3 worth of God. See, here we get judgment. We get bigness. And we get challenge. And we get unexpected things. We get a whole lot more this morning than $3 worth of God. We've been going through a series of the life of David, and one of the things we're doing is tracing this idea of the normal Christian life. Ordinary spirituality is another way to say it, and I think this chapter gets at this idea as directly as any passage that we will look at through our entire series. Why do I say that? Because the normal Christian life involves encountering the living God, does it not? This passage this morning shows us what it looks like to encounter the real and true God. So follow along with me this morning as I read a very, very disturbing passage. I think you'll see what I mean as I read. This is God's holy and inspired word. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 15. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Bailey Judah to bring up there the ark of God, which is called the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ohio was before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all of his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with sounds and with the sound of the horn. This is God's word. Let me pray and ask him to help us this morning with this difficult passage. Let's pray together. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Father, you are good and you are gracious. But as we have just read in this passage this morning, you are holy and you are not to be trifled with. You are not to be taken casually. This is a very difficult passage and we need your help this morning. And I pray that you would come through your spirit And that you would shake us in good ways. Shake us, wake us up, remind us uh, of the ways that you call for us to treat you. So I pray that we would indeed tremble this morning. But at the very same time, we pray, uh, I pray that you would show us that you really do desire to be with us. That you do love us. And so we need you also this morning to bring us to the feet of Jesus. So would you do these things in Jesus' name, amen. What a passage, huh? Very difficult and disturbing passage, and if we're honest, if I'm honest, the temptation for us is to come to passages like this, it was for me this week, and to simply avoid it because it's hard. I didn't have to preach this. I could have just gone to 2 Samuel, and that's kind of what I wanted to do. Go to 2 Samuel chapter 7 but as i thought about that is i don't want to do that i don't want i want us to be a church that deals with the difficult passages in the bible because i think it actually proves uh, the trustworthiness of the Bible. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that we you honor us this morning with your presence. We're really glad you're here. And if you think about this passage, yes, it's hard and probably hard for you to hear, but it does, I think, prove the trustworthiness of the Bible. And here's what I mean. We would have never invented a God like this. We would never have constructed a God like this Because this is not God's best PR moment. This is not the ways that you win friends and influence people. This is not what's going to pack the pews on Sunday morning. Because it's offensive. And it's disturbing. And it's not the God that we want, is it? And so we often want to skip over it. And we just, when we're talking to our friends, we just try to, yeah, that's the God of the Old Testament. We'll say. The only problem with that is that it's also the God of the New Testament (laughs) because we see something very similar in Acts chapter 5. Remember, Ananias and Sapphira are coming out of a Bible study and God strikes them down for treating him casually. This is the God of the Old Testament, this is the God of the New Testament, and he is holy. And he is not to be trifled with. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 24 says that God is a consuming fire. And so I want us to take this passage this morning head on without flinching. Maybe not without flinching. Because it makes you flinch. But I don't want us to gloss over this story. Because you see, ordinary spirituality, the everyday Christian life, involves encountering the God of 2 Samuel chapter 6. And so this morning, here's the question. What does it look like to encounter the real God? The God of the Bible. It looks like two things. It looks like danger and dancing. Those are the two points this morning. Danger and dancing. Let's look at number one, danger. A lot's happened since we... We're looking at the life of David. We've been studying the life of David. And a couple of weeks ago, we were in Psalm 56. And remember, David was on the run. Saul was trying to kill him. David was on the run, running for his life. And he was hiding in a cave, all alone. And he wrote Psalm 56. And we looked a couple of weeks ago uh, and talked about suffering from Psalm chapter 56. Since that time... Saul has died, and we're into 2 Samuel. And in 2 Samuel chapter 5, if you were to go back and look at it, David is actually finally installed as the king over Israel, over God's people. And the first thing he does is establish Jerusalem as the capital city of Israel. And then secondly, look at verses 1 and 2. His first order of business is to bring the ark of God to Jerusalem. And so he gathers 30,000 men... And says, let's go get the Ark of God and bring it back. And David is doing a very good thing here. See, what David is doing is saying, I want God to be the central focus of my kingdom. I want God to be the thing that we worship. I want God to be the primary reality in my kingdom. It's a good thing. But what is the Ark of God exactly? Because we need to talk about that. Because when we think of the Ark of the Covenant or the Ark of God... If you're like me, we go to Indiana Jones and we think about people's faces melting off. There's way more to the ark of God than that. So what is it? Well, the ark was this wooden box that was plated in gold and it signified God's presence. And it really was God's way of telling his people three primary things about himself. Number one, that he's a God that reveals himself to his people. So revelation It was a way of emphasizing God's revelation with his people. Why? Because inside the box were the stone tablets, were the Ten Commandments. Secondly, it was God's way of saying that he was a God of reconciliation. Because what would happen back then was on the Day of Atonement, the priest would kill an animal, sacrifice an animal, bring blood in and sprinkle it on top of the Ark of God and in front of the Ark. As a way of saying, I have provided a way for me to be with my people. So revelation, reconciliation, and then lastly, the ark symbolized... uh, Or was a way to signify God's rule. Because it was God's footstool. Back then, kings would sit on their thrones... And they would have footstools that they would rest their feet on. The ark was God's footstool. It was God's way of communicating to his people that I am the true and lasting king. Ralph Dell Davis, who's a commentator, I love what he says, and this is important. The ark wasn't an image of God. Okay, The ark is not an image of God, but it is a sacrament of his presence. That's very important. The ark was a sacrament. What is a sacrament? It's a visible reality with an invisible, communicating an invisible truth. And so the ark signified God as being a God that reveals himself, that reconciles himself with his people and reigns over his people. The ark, a lot of people think this, was it's not a lucky rabbit's foot. That they were to just simply carry around and if they always had it with them, then they were going to be successful. No, it was a sacrament of God. It was a way for God to say, I am with my people. Present in a very real and special way. And so that's the ark. And so 30 years, this ark has been sitting in obscurity in this man named Abinadab's house. And if you want to know how the ark got to Abinadab's house, go back and read 1 Samuel. We don't have time to cover that this morning. But David wants it in Jerusalem and says he he gets 30,000 people. Think about that. That's three times the BJCC. That's a lot of people and they go to Abinadab's house to get this ark and it breaks out in this party as they're taking the ark back to Jerusalem so think like sloss fest okay that's the picture they're singing there's dancing there's there's a party it's very festive and they're carrying the ark back and doing all of this dancing and then look at if you look at verse 5 you get the feel of that so outdoor music festival is the picture here and on the way back An oxen stumbles and the ark starts to slide off of the cart. And Uzzah, who was one of the men that was helping transport it, reaches out just like you would reach out and I would reach out if we were doing the very same thing instinctively because he doesn't want the ark to touch the ground and get dirty. And so he does that and then look at verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there. Notice the ark didn't strike him down. God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark. Look closely at that. It does not say, I know it's obvious, but we got to see this. It doesn't say the the weight of the ark fell on him and crushed him and so he died. I wish it said that, actually. But it couldn't be any clearer. God struck him down. And in the blink of an eye, we go from sloth fest to hearing a pin drop. It's like someone unplugged the main power cord at the concert and it goes. (laughs) Dead silence. In the blink of an eye, the party is over. Turn out the lights. And everyone heads home. In utter silence. What do you do with this? What do we do with this? Does this offend you this morning? Does this disturb you? And if it doesn't disturb you, and if it's not offensive to you, then you're not listening. Then you uh, aren't letting this hit you and being really honest because Uzzah was a good man. He was a religious man. He was doing what he thought was the right thing by reaching out for the ark and God strikes him down on the spot for simply touching it. And so he had good intentions. And so the question then is, why in the world would God do this? Why would he strike Uzzah down on the spot? Is God just simply being cranky? Did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed? Is he having a bad day? Is God irritable? And the answer is No. You see, God is kind, and he actually, in Numbers chapter 4, way back in Numbers chapter 4, had given very specific instructions on how the ark was to be carried because he wanted to protect his people. And so in Numbers chapter 4, he gives specific instructions for transporting the ark. And the instructions were this, the ark was to be covered so that you would not look at it. The ark was to be carried by the Levites or the priests. And it was to be carried on poles. There were these hooks or rings. And poles would go through the rings and they would put it on their shoulders so that they would not have to touch it. Back to Uzzah. He violates every single one of those rules. The ark is not covered. It's put on an ox cart. Levites or priests were not used to carry it. You see, Uzzah had become way too familiar with the ark of God. Because, you see, it had been in his house for 30 years. It had been in his dad's house. And he had seen it over and over and over for 30 years. I've been managing this thing for a long time, thank you very much. I don't need you, God, to tell me what to do. I know exactly what I'm doing when it comes to the ark. See, he had become way too casual with God. He thought he was in charge of God. And God in this moment says, I will not be managed. You will not manage me, I will manage you. You do not take care of me, I take care of you. Yes, I am present with you in a very real and special way, but don't forget I am different than you, and you cannot treat me casually because I am holy." See, that's the first reality of encountering God, isn't it? Is when you come face to face with God, you realize that he is holy and you realize that you are not. And it takes you to your knees. See what God is doing here with David through this event with Uzzah. Is he's actually having what I call a DTR with David. You know what a DTR is? Define the relationship talk. Or should we say, redefine the relationship talk? Where you know, if a dating couple, that'll happen a couple times. But it's not just with dating couples, is it? We have these kinds of things with employers, you know. Have you ever had your boss call you in and say, hey, we got something we need to talk about. Let me rear, you crossed the line. We need to redefine the relationship. Or it also happens with parents and children, doesn't it? My parents were in town a couple of weeks ago, and... The following week, we were with our girls and we were sitting around the dinner table and we were just sharing stories and every now and then our girls would ask us questions about us growing up and since my parents were in town, they were saying, Dad, tell us about a time when you got in trouble (laughs) when you were a kid. And so my mind almost instantly went to a time when I was 10 years old. Uh, This was not, kids, do not do this. This was not my greatest moment. (laughs) Uh, I had a... A couple kids come up to me after a boy's come up, and you'll understand why. But they were like, so you struck out looking playing baseball? (laughs) But I was playing Little League baseball, very competitive. Uh, I hated to lose. And there was this one game where I got struck out looking. That's where the ball comes right down the middle of the plate. There were two strikes against me. And I didn't swing, and the umpire says, you're out, basically head to the dugout. Well, I don't like to lose, and I'm very competitive. And so I head to the dugout, and in my mind, I'm thinking Major League Baseball, all the things I'd seen on TV that these players would do when they strike out looking. I'd seen older, older people that were older than me, what they do when they strike out looking. And so I thought, I'm really mad, I'm going to do that. So I go back to the dugout and I throw my helmet and I take my bat and I throw my bat and I throw the biggest temper tantrum. I just have a fit right there in the dugout right in front of the world to see. And I think I'm the coolest kid in town. Then after the game, we end up winning, so I'm all fired up talking, you know, my dad. And I can't understand why my dad is not saying a word. On the way home, well, I learned very quickly why my dad was not saying a word on the way home. And listen, I love my dad. I got a great dad. We love each other. And uh, but he's old school. And let's just say, when I got home, he redefined the relationship. <laughs> why did he redefine the relationship? I'd crossed the line. I had treated something very casually and poorly that was very dear to him, the family name. That's what God's doing here. God is redefining his relationship with David. Just like my dad woke me up, God wakes David up and says, I'm the true king. You have crossed the line. You cannot treat me casually. Have you forgotten what God is like this morning? If you have forgotten what God is like this morning, God gives us passages like this in order to reel us back in and to remind us what he is like. Because God here is saying, do you really know? Do you know who you're messing with and dealing with when you're dealing with me? I think this is a wake-up call for us living in the religious south. Because we know a whole lot or think we know God when really we just know about God. Because what we really want, if we're honest, is $3 worth of God, please. Have you become so familiar with the Bible that just simply being here this morning leads you to a boring yawn? Have you been going to church so long that sermons you just learn and train yourself to endure them rather than listen to them? This is God's word to us. So have you trained yourself just to endure rather than listen and do what God is calling you to do? Is this simply when you open this book up, is it just another old book to you? Or is it something that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, as it says in Hebrews chapter 4? Or have you made God into a God who just accepts and loves and is completely on board with whatever you decide? Do you have a God that can say no to you? Do you have a God that can challenge you? Or do you simply look at something in the Bible and, say, and it says, God says one thing, but you say, eh, whatever. I don't really care. You find yourself there this morning. God wants to redefine his relationship with you. Friends, God... It's supposed to make us tremble. Number one, you encounter the real God. The first thing we see, it is involves danger. And secondly, and this is the good news, it involves dancing. Look at verse 9. Okay, so David witnesses this, and he sees this all go down, and he's rightly, he's afraid. And look at his, this is easy to miss, but this is a key verse Verse 9, David says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David totally gets it here, doesn't he? He totally, when he sees this happen, he says, God is holy and I'm not. And there is this huge gulf between us and I can do nothing about it. Then look at verse 10 and 11. I I think this is humorous. Not really, but think about the scene. This all goes down, and David, all of a sudden, he doesn't want this thing. He says, "Oh, you know, Obed-Edom, you take it. I don't want it. Obed-Edom, I'm sure he really uh, was excited about having the ark in his house after he had just witnessed this event. But it sits in Obed-Edom's house for three months. And look at what happens. We go from death to dancing. Why do we go from death to dancing? Look at the end of verse 11 through verse 12. The Lord blessed Obed-Edom and blessed his household. And David finds out about this and all of a sudden David's saying, all right, I'll take the ark now. Bring it to the city of David. Look at verses 14 and 15. And so David danced before the Lord with all of his might as they bring back the ark of the covenant with shouting and celebration. David gets the point. He realizes that the ark of God was meant to be a blessing. That it was not meant for God to destroy us. If you think this passage means that God has a do not disturb sign on his door, you've missed it. That's not what this passage means. The point of this passage, David is saying that the ark brings danger and dancing and they both go together at the very same time. Because that's what encountering God is like. Encountering God involves both danger and dancing at the same time. Think about it. Some of you err on one side or the other. For some of you, your relationship with God is all danger and trembling and there's no dancing in your life. You don't know how to dance. There's no freedom. There's no joy. Or on the other hand, you're all dancing and no trembling or fear, the fear of God in your life. We see here that a relationship with God and encountering Him means those things go together. Did you notice here that David responds differently? He handles the ark differently the second time around after it's been three months. And we don't know exactly what's happened. But David's changed. I don't know whether he went back and got the instruction manual out and studied a little bit more about the ark, whether he talked to some priest or whether he prayed. But whatever happened, David changed. And he realized that in order for the holiness of God to dwell with people, that someone or something must die. He realized that he was no better than Uzzah. And that the only way God can dwell with sinful people is if sin gets dealt with in some way. And so the DTR, that define the relationship talk, worked. Because David was reminded that you just can't treat God casually. That you can't just decide for yourself how you're going to treat God and approach Him and seek Him out. And he remembered that God has actually provided a way through the sacrificial system. Remember the sacrificial system. The priest would come and before they would go into God's presence in order for them to go into God's presence something must die. There must be bloodshed. And so they would kill an animal and they would go in to the presence of God. Only after that had happened. Look at verse 13. They took six steps. And David says stop. We've got to offer a sacrifice. They spilt blood and God accepts the sacrifice. Think about the sacrificial system this way. Sacrifices are like electrical transformers, you know, that run power into your house. Think about how strong that power is before it hits the transformer. It can kill you if you handle that electricity without it going through the transformer. Very, very powerful. And if it were to come into your house... Not going through the transformer and you plugged your toaster oven in. That would not be a good sight. Transformers, very powerful. You see them, we used to have one behind our house. It blows up, it's loud, it's like a bomb goes off and it lights up the entire sky. The transformer diffuses the power so that it can travel into your house and be powerful but yet gentle. So that even a little kid can plug in a nightlight. And do it safely. That's the sacrifices. And that's the sacrificial system. They are like transformers. That take the holiness of God. And they ground it. So that you can be in the presence of God. And you see the holiness of God there. And he's holy. Because he demands a blood sacrifice. But he's gentle in the fact that. He allows. And he receives sacrifices to begin with. But here's the real question. Okay. That was like 3,000 years ago. What about now? How can we today go into the presence of God and receive his presence? That's the real question, isn't it? Well, you see, 3,000 or so years after this event, God sends the ultimate transformer, God sends the perfect transformer. He sends the cross of Jesus Christ. And at the cross, when you see the cross, the ark that we see here is fulfilled in Jesus. Because you think about the cross and you have the two messages of the ark. Because what do you find when you look at the cross? Justice. And holiness, and grace, and mercy, and dancing, and death, and truth, and grace. And on at the cross, those two things kiss. They come together. See, On the cross, we see the holiness and the justice of God, and that He must take sin seriously. If you ever doubt that God takes your sin seriously, simply look at the cross of Christ. Because on the cross, we see that instead of destroying us, His sinful people... God destroys his son. But on the cross, we also see that there's dancing and there's love and there's grace because the cross says it's God's way of saying, I want to bless my people. I want to be with my people. I love them. And because I love them, I will gladly, voluntarily lay down my life for them so that I can be with them for eternity. Jesus Christ becomes Uzzah for us. See, that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why Christianity is such good news. Because God comes and says, I will strike down my son so that my people can dance. You know a God like that? That's the God of the Bible. If you hadn't figured out yet, he's pretty amazing. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to your people. And though you are holy, you're also very gracious and you have provided a way for us to come into your presence through your son. Would you make that reality real to our hearts this morning? Uh, through the table as we come uh, and dine with you. In Jesus' name, amen.